good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy May 1st. Today on the program, I'll catch up with actor and comedian Mary Lynn Rice Cub. You know her from the hit series 24 and several films, and now she's an author. We'll hear all about her new book. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal will join me to review a revival of a thought provoking play that deals with racism in the workplace. Later, we'll get ready for fashion's biggest night with a look back at a documentary that provides an inside look at the Met Gala. And I'll sit down with the new executive director of the Ruth Page Center for the Arts. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for Arts and Culture this morning. Chances are you've probably seen Mary Lynn Rice Cub in one of several movies or TV shows over the years, though most people know her best for playing Chloe on the Fox series 24. Look, I'm sorry that my private life hasn't remained private today. I'm thinking the opposite. What do you mean? You're too private. We've known each other for years, and today I find that you're keeping secrets from me? Haven't you ever taken a psychology class? People keep secrets. I don't. Not from my friends. Why didn't you tell me Jack was alive? Oh, come on. It's called national security. Yeah, well, what about Spencer? I didn't even know you two were going out. Oh, give me a break. Okay, when we find the nerve gas and the alert level drops, we can have some chamomile tea, and I'll tell you all my secrets, okay? Classic Chloe, am I right? In addition to acting in several projects every year, including the new Hulu Limited series The Dropout, Rice Cub is also a stand-up comedian and now an author. Her new book, Fame-ish, comes out on May 17th. The book is a memoir of sorts made up of 28 essays. I recently caught up with the Michigan native while she was in Aurora for a couple of comedy shows on her current tour. I think there's a lot of people out there that know you from all the, the roles you've had in TV shows and movies, especially 24, but they might not be aware that you also do stand-up comedy, and really, you did that before you ever started acting. So who are some of the, the comedians who influenced your style of comedy or who you looked up to? The thing about me doing stand-up is that the beauty of it is I was able to find my own style that is unique to my personality. It was a way for me to express myself that I couldn't do as a painter, which is what I was going to school for, you know? Right. And then speaking of that, there is this weird local connection uh, for those of us here in Chicago that you write about in your book. Uh, Coming out of high school, you really wanted to study at the Art Institute here in Chicago, but for various reasons, uh, that didn't happen. But who knows? If, if you did come to Chicago, everything might have been different. I did. I wanted to go really, really bad. But, I mean, I didn't even have the money to go where I went. I somehow figured it out. But um, I got into the Chicago Art Institute. But, yeah, there was no way I was going to be able to 
pay and move. And, you know, at the time I, I commuted from my parents' house and I think I just used charge cards and, and charged that tuition. And, you know, many, many years later paid it off. But yeah, I would have loved to have gone to the Art Institute. That was my dream. But I took my second dream and stayed in Detroit. And <laughs> the, equivalent, the equivalent there. Similar Midwest values, probably. Absolutely. I think you write in the intro that um, you had thought about writing a, like a memoir-ish type of thing 10 years ago. Then, So this idea of writing a, a book, has that been something that's been you've been thinking about for a while? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a natural offshoot of being a solo performer and being a comic and being a storyteller. And then, you know, now I've finally gotten to the point where I can look back and I'm also a fully grown adult who's had a complete, you know, life's worth of experiences co-mingling with these brushes with fame and these, you know, being a TV movie actor. And that's that's kind of what the book is. It's a mixture of that high-low, you know, the Midwestern, the whole chapter about me waiting tables and my first audition. So you get that along with these juicy celeb anecdotes. So it's, it's sort of... That's the idea behind it, is like these mundane, everyday life uh, trials and tribulations that everybody goes through, sprinkled with the, the oddness of being on a hugely successful television show for eight years, you know? Did you enjoy the, the process of sitting down and putting these memories to paper? I did enjoy it. I enjoy it the same way I enjoy any other creative process I enjoyed it in that it was really really hard and it was a definite adjustment because you know I got up to get snacks every two minutes and <laughs> if I sit any, any longer than that it's, it's also the you know oh I'm so sleepy it's like whenever you sit down to like actually study or do something not saying that I didn't want to do it but the act of doing it it's just like oh I'm tired or distracted it's, it's a very different process than writing stuff for the stage that comes in short snippets but I was able to uh, dictate some of it out out loud and I I used that as a jumping off point for several of the chapters. So we can't talk about all of the essays but I'm hoping we can highlight a couple of my favorites and one of them is this essay titled Getting the Part where you really do a great job of, of writing what it's like behind the scenes and giving us a glimpse of how things work in Hollywood as far as casting. And then you write in this chapter about how you got on 24 and really the whole process was really the result of almost happenstance. Yeah, that's a good story, right? Yeah, man. It's got all the like dreamy parts in it. And and I really, truly, the just for your audience who hasn't read the book, and I won't give away the whole thing, but the the producer of 24 had seen me in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and called me in. I didn't want to go in, said he was going to write a part for me. I didn't believe him. And then he did. It was just like, and, and I write, oh, I write in the book that had he just called me in there to validate that he had seen me and liked my performance, that truly would have been enough. Everything else was just, beyond what I could have imagined, you know? And then there's a a chapter titled Tom Cruise. We won't give too much away, but it's all about 
but it's all about this specific time you worked with him on a film, uh, one of my favorites, called Magnolia, though that scene didn't make it in the film. And the next chapter, you write a little bit about your relationship to 24 co-star Kiefer Sutherland, uh, and for people of my generation, those are two pretty big names, Tom Cruise and, and Kiefer Sutherland growing up. Uh, those are two of my favorite actors, um, Lost Boys Forever. I know it sounds kind of shallow, but it is interesting reading about what these huge stars are like off camera. Uh, and you provide some really cool stories about your interactions with those two. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And you, you know, you called it. I'm the same way growing up watching Tom Cruise and Kiefer Sutherland. And it's a big deal to be around both of these guys either one of them, let alone both of them, and the weird, you know, proximity and work I've, I've been able to do. And then a big part of the book, people will be able to guess this from the, the title, Fame-ish, uh, is just about you kind of like navigating your life, you know, probably being recognized. I think a lot of people, I would guess, you know, know you from 24 and then all these other things you've done. What's like, do you ever get like the occasional like odd, random, or like I know you from... Oh. From this, and it's Absolutely. like... Absolutely. I was in another city going to get a guest pass at a gym, and this girl says, are you from Legally Blonde too?" <laughs> and she walked, she walked me around the gym to any of her coworkers or people in the gym. She was in Legally Blonde too. she told everybody. And <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was hilarious and adorable, and I didn't... You know, I had to stand there and wait to see either the people, either the people reacting like I don't care, or wait, isn't she that person from this other thing that is way more known than that? But you know, I just walked around with her and let her show me off as the actress from Legally Blonde too. And then there's other completely opposite type of thing where so I did this independent movie called Mysterious Skin, and it's a really low budget but very high quality touching really hard to watch movie because the subject matter is child abuse sexual child abuse but the story is of the two young men and how it affected them in very different ways and how they reconnect with each other and it's just such a harrowing but like really beautifully done movie and so there's also stuff like that where someone will come up to me and say were you in mysterious skin and that has such a different, it's like really moving because it's such a special film that not a lot of people have seen, you know. So that's always, the mo there's moments like that where I go, oh, you, you, you saw that. That's so cool. Yeah. My wife and I were binging a, a show in, uh, on Hulu, The Dropout, and was watching last night. And then I'm like, hey, I'm going to. I'm interviewing that that person. Yes, <laughs> uh, I get around. I get a lot of places. <laughs> so the director of that uh, is called Michael Showalter, and I know him from Comedy Days. He's gone on to become a hugely successful, he's a very talented director. I knew him from comedy. But, you know, and of course, the dropout is the story of Elizabeth Holmes, who got in trouble for creating this billions-of-dollar company on a product that didn't exist. Is she in jail now? I didn't even follow her trial. Yeah, the dropout is the narrative of that, but I am the wife of um, William H. Macy's character, and that was a dream come true to be able to work with him, but that's funny that you were watching that and I popped up. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with actor, comedian, and author Mary Lynn Rice Cub about her upcoming book, Famish. And we were just talking about the the dropout, uh, the show on Hulu right now, which is turning out to be a pretty big hit. I saw in your IMDb that you've got a, a movie coming out with the late Bob Saget and uh, rocker Iggy Pop. Uh, plus, your book is coming out, and you're still doing stand-up on tour. At this point in your career, what are you looking for when you get a script or when you get proposed a project? Are there certain things you're looking for before you commit to something? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it has to be something that really moves me because I think for years, well, I shouldn't say that because I do have a certain quality of work. I've been very lucky that the stuff that's meant for me sort of finds me. But even more so now, I, I you know, I'm really picky. I, I don't. I have stand-up, I have writing, you know, I'm good. So the acting that comes along needs to be something special or interesting. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that deep either. Like, I just did a guest spot on John Stamos' show for Disney+, Plus, where he plays, like, a disgraced NBA coach, and I play his longtime publicist. Like, that's just a fun, you know, good group of people. That part I haven't played before, it's in town. But, yeah, I'm still, you know... I'm still hungry for stuff I haven't played before, stuff that has some depth to it. Famish comes out later this month. So after you spend so much time working on this, writing these stories, you know, it's a very personal experience, and now you're going to be putting those out there. Do you have hopes for what readers take away from the book? I hope they laugh and are, can relate to it and are a little bit touched by it because, you know, I, I, I talk about a lot of silly stuff, but what I found in writing it is I couldn't, I couldn't write it unless it was real and, you know, poignant to me in some way. Usually that they involve some type of insight and some of them are more than others, you know, like I do write about the period of time when I was going through a divorce. And so it's got, it's got a little bit of everything, but that's kind of what was driving, you know, there was, there, and, I, and I think there are certain things that were left out. Like if you're an always sunny in Philadelphia fan, I I didn't really I didn't really know what to write about it. I should probably figure out something to write about it because it was a really <laughs> fun experience. But but it wasn't. I was you know I was like oh I I worked with the guys. They were great. We collaborated. It was fun. You know I didn't really know. So conversely, the stuff that I did write about, it's got some some attachment of either conflict or grief or joy or you know like writing about that first audition is, that was so painful but actually really fun to write about because enough time has passed and I'll just I'll never forget that like that whole experience you know yeah. working on Always Sunny was like it wasn't traumatic working on Always Sunny in Philadelphia was fun so it's kind of hard to write about something it was like yeah we had a great time <laughs> it was super collaborative you know right right yeah, Always Sunny in Philadelphia has this roster of uh, memorable characters that, that fans love, uh, and they'll pop up in you know different episodes in, in different seasons. It could be years apart, and, and fans always seem to remember them instantly. There's almost there's really like a, a cult following for these reoccurring characters on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Guys, let's do shots and get crazy. No, oh, we're intervening Gail. on you, Snail. Go, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's one of my favorite characters is, is Gail the Snail. I, I definitely can I'll, I'll figure out a way to write about it. But, you know, there's part of me that's like there's so much that I didn't write about 
but that'll be that'll be good for book two. Mary Lynn, I love the book. It was a really enjoyable read. I appreciate you taking time to to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The book is good, right? I'm so glad you're reading it. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you again. That's actor, comedian, and author Mary Lynn Rice Cub. Her book, Famish, comes out on May 17th. It'll be available everywhere books are sold. You can find more information at Rice Cub's website, which is MaryLynnMaryLynn.com. I'll also post a link on theartsection.org. you are listening to the art section my name is gary zydek i'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics carrie reed and jonathan abarbanel good morning good morning good Gary. morning good morning as we wait for spring which seems like it's never going to be here this year <laughs> it's hard to believe it's may 1st and uh, we should start seeing some warmer weather any day now <laughs> You know the old joke about Chicago. There are only two seasons, winter and construction. <laughs> <laughs> it's warming up so people can get out to the theater. Chattered Globe Theater is presenting Joel Drake Johnson's 2013 play, Rashida Speaking. It made its world premiere nine years ago at Rivendell Theater. Sandy Shinner directed that production, and, and now she's the producing artistic director at Chattered Globe. Over the years, this work has had some high-profile productions, including one in New York directed by Sex and the City actor Cynthia Nixon and starring Tony Award winner Tanya Pinkins and two-time Academy Award winner Diane Wiest. This new production is directed by Shattered Globe Theater's Associate Artistic Director Amber D. Montgomery and stars Daria Harper as Eileen and Deanna Reed Foster as Jacqueline. Rashida Speaking dives into the ugliness of workplace racism. The setting is a doctor's office. Two women work in the reception area. Jacqueline is black and Eileen is white, as is the doctor whose office it is. And the dueling critics will be able to provide a better setup. But I should also mention that Shattered Globe has included a content warning in the program that states, Rashida Speaking depicts sensitive content, including but not limited to racial slurs, microaggressions, gaslighting, and respectability politics in the workplace. And we'll turn to Jonathan. You say some of this play made you uncomfortable. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Rashida Speaking made me quite uncomfortable in spots. As you noted, Gary, it's about racism. And maybe it stirred up my privileged older white male guilt, because all of those terms apply to me, I think. Or perhaps I simply was, or maybe also, was appalled by what was going on in this play's upscale setting, a doctor's office. Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult for me to accept that all white people are as overtly insensitive and covertly racist as this play's three white characters. And each one is, represents a different generation. There's a young doctor, his middle-aged employee, Eileen, the character you mentioned, and a geriatric patient. And this current of racism, uh, both overt and covert, runs through all three of them. And the subject is uh, Jacqueline, as you said, a middle-aged black woman who also is an office administrator for the doctor. She is the protagonist and also the symbolic Rashida of the title, which is a name the play establishes as an insulting catch-all 
for black women in positions of authority, even if it's somewhat minimal authority, such as Jacqueline's as an office uh, administrator receptionist. Carrie, how did you respond? Well, I think one thing that we should point out is that the play was written by the late Joel Drake Johnson, who was, in fact, a white middle-aged man, or I'm not sure how old he was when he passed a few years ago, a gay man, but a white man. So I think that's an interesting aspect to bring into this discussion. As far as Do I feel like it's a blanket condemnation of all white people? No, I absolutely don't. But I do think that it's asking us, and I agree, there are moments that are very uncomfortable, and I think that's very much by design, to examine assumptions we bring into the workplace, assumptions about communication style that are appropriate or inappropriate, how much race has affected that. Uh, Jacqueline is played beautifully, I should add, by Deanna Reed Foster, who's somebody I almost always enjoy seeing on stage, no matter what the play. She's she's really got a lovely range, and she brings the, a certain kind of bluntness when we first meet Jacqueline. Jacqueline has, she's a very direct speaking person. Now, is that a because of her race? Is that because of who she is? Is that because of the circumstances that have led her to, you know, up to this point in her life? We're not really sure. What we do see is how that is treated by the three white people around her. As you mentioned, Jonathan, an older uh, female patient, her co-worker, and the doctor, the young doctor whose office um, employs them. I think it's a really interesting play. I think that it's often very funny, although you may be laughing and then going, eh, with <laughs> moments of uh, great discomfort. I think, though, that that's kind of what the play is asking us to do, is examine where does this discomfort from come from? How do we deal with it? Or do we just shut down? You know, there's a very funny but also very aggravating scene later in the play where um, her co-worker, uh, Eileen, played by Daria Harper, de- it deploys what we've come to know as white woman tears, you know, to make a case for why she feels so set upon by Jacqueline. So, yeah, I, I, I recommend it. I think that it's right to know going in that there might be moments that will put you you know, on the hot seat a bit, but, you know, that, that's not always a bad thing. The play is, it's a deeply serious play in terms of its themes and ideas, but Rashida speaking, as you noted, Carrie, offers a great deal of humor, of comedy, laugh-out-loud mm-hmm. comedy, and this is always a hallmark of, of Johnson's writing, uh, always has been. And as you pointed out, the playwright, Joel Drake Johnson, uh, it was a white playwright, uh, and, you know, there's an unspoken rule of thumb in theater for uh, the last few decades that white playwrights should not create black characters, but black playwrights may create white characters. Now, this rule is inherently unfair and perhaps even reverse racist. And Johnson proves with his character Jacqueline or Jacqueline, uh, you know, how how. Uh, 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 how unfair this rule of thumb is, because he's created an entirely credible, powerful, and complex heroine. But I think he goes overboard with his white characters, especially the doctor and the geriatric patient, who are rather transparent. The senior office administrator, Eileen, is much more completely drawn, and she has to be, because she's the one principally who interacts the most with Jacqueline. Now, Jacqueline herself is a piece of work. She's passive-aggressive, she's defensive from time to time, and every bit as devious as the doctor and Eileen proved to be. And she also has some semi-humorous nonsense ideas about toxins in the (laughs) air from Xerox machines, 
which she wards off with crystals. Well, of course, there are toxins in the air. It's symbolic. They turn out to be the toxicity of racism, which is very, very real. Um, I agree with you that under director Amber D. Montgomery, Deanna Reed Foster is astonishing as Jacqueline. Carefully crafted uh, uh, character, varied, riveting, entirely committed, and there's no justice if she is not up for a Jefferson Award next fall. I like Daria Harper as the cheerful but crafty Eileen, uh, who teams very well with uh, Reed Foster. And and, and they inhabit, the setting itself is very neutral, very sterile, a modern doctor's reception (laughs) area. I was going to say very white, Jonathan. Very very white set, which I thought was deliberate. It's a big white shadow box set (laughs) with two desks and a a big reception sign-in counter. The scenic designer is Scott Penner, um, and it works well. But, I mean, I, I say sterile because, you know, most medical offices, you come in and they're neutral colors, you know, white or beiges of some kind, and it's kind of a sterile environment. Yeah, I thought the play was, you know, another play it kind of reminded me of is a play called What We're Up Against, which was done by Compass Theater a few years ago. That's a Teresa Rabick play that is looking more at uh, sexual harassment and sexism in the workplace, but it kind of it deploys some of the same things, this use of an environment that is seemingly more sterile, more, I believe in that case it's an architect's office. And I think the point in both cases is let's set this action someplace where you think things are very genteel, very quote-unquote professional, to see just how soon those layers peel back and people are actually, in fact, you know, willing to show the not-so-savory sides of their characters. I want to push back a little bit, I think, Jonathan, on your assertion that there's a rule of thumb that white playwrights cannot write black characters. I think that what has been most, what I have seen mostly is an ask that if you are doing so, do so from a place of knowledge, do so from a place of research. I don't know, obviously, what kind of research Joel Drake Johnson did. I know he was a teacher for a number of years, but being in the theater world, I would assume that he had, you know, had occasion to talk to many different black women. He was a member of the Victory Gardens Theater Ensemble, so I'm sure he had discussions with his fellow ensemble members like Gloria Bond Clooney. And I think I would love to actually know what the research was on this. Like, did he do actual interviews with people? Because I think particularly in the case of Jacqueline, as you pointed out, Jonathan, it's such a richly detailed and layered performance from Deanna Reed Foster. And that's not just the actor, that is in the writing, and she finds every level of that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's fair to say that the doctor and the the, uh, the patient, played by Barbara Rhoda Harris, are a little bit more on the surface. And I'm wondering if that's maybe because we're seeing them, particularly the patient, in a more surface interaction, although one that's also fraught because she's there for you know, a fairly serious health condition. So you you have some sympathy, I think, for the fact that she's also facing a not usual circumstance in this seemingly very sterile and neutral environment. So I just think there's a lot of different levels going on here, and I'm still chewing over some of them, obviously. But um, I'm very, very glad, since I did not see the Rivendell production, to be able to have seen the Shattered Globe, what I think is an excellent, excellent revival. Yeah, it's a very powerful production, very well performed. The, the you know it's it's only four characters, uh, and uh, uh, two of them are supporting characters, and two of them are principal characters. So it is uh, it is it is fairly simple in terms of presentation, and its complexities are all the layering of the two principal characters 
and the situations that um, unravel. Uh, you know, the reason why I said there's this rule of thumb that says that white playwrights not cannot but should not mm-hmm. create black characters is the whole thing about cultural appropriation. Sure. What do they know about you know, black society, about black culture, about the experiences, whether the writing of contemporary characters or, you know, uh, black characters set on a plantation in 1850. What do white authors know about that? And that is the, that's really the, the issue. So it's a, sure. it's, it's a slippery slope. And, and it may in fact be that this is a, one of the plays that is the exception that proves the rule, because as I said, I do feel like, you know, Jacqueline yeah. is drawn in such a, in such a rich and layered way. Um, and not always completely sympathetic. There are points when you think, hmm, I don't know how I feel about working with this person who is, you know, as you say, always going on about toxins in the air. And, She's um, passive-aggressive, like I said. Yeah. Sure, sure. But then you start thinking, is this a survival technique that she's had to adopt, you know, in a world where, you know, maybe being yeah. aggressive, you know, obviously being aggressive-aggressive has its own uh, dangers for, for black people in, in, in America, certainly. Um, but I think it's just a, you know, it, it's a fast-moving, I found it very fast-moving. I think it's about, what, 90 minutes, Jonathan? Yeah, 90, uh, No intermission. Minutes, straight through, um, yeah. Four yeah. scenes, straight through, yeah. 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 I wanted to point, I have, um, another play that's happening right now that I've not had the chance to see, although I read the script, is a piece at Impact, which is an African-American theater company. Uh, and they're doing a play called Pulled Punches, which is an update on Amiri Baraka's very famous play, Dutchman. And in Dutchman, which was written in 1964, a young white woman starts taunting and kind of coming on to and really trying to get under the skin of a, of a black man on a subway train. In Pulled Punches, they have, uh, it's been uh, reconfigured as a young black woman on a metro train and an older white man who is an ally and a good liberal you know, professor of African-American history at Northwestern, and he starts trying to engage her in conversation. Um, so I think it's interesting we have two plays at the same time in the city that really deal with this kind of closed environment to to a certain extent where it's black people and white people dealing with all the nuances and layers of something where it's not just a a completely nakedly violent racial interaction but more about how do these things come out in conversation or how you you know how you invade or don't invade somebody's personal space and you know all these other things that I think are harder to wrestle with because again they're not as apparent they're not as obvious as you know putting on a white hood and burning a cross on somebody's lawn. Joel Drake Johnson, you mentioned Kerry, uh, died a couple of years ago, two years ago. He was seventy. He died of cancer, and he came to playwriting quite late after many couple of decades of teaching. And he won wide admiration for a very diverse range of plays, from 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 you know total comedies to to serious dramas. Stylistically, each one was different, but all of them were intelligent, are intelligent, mm-hmm. well constructed, funny, and purposeful. Right. And uh, this revival of Rashida speaking really is a wonderful example of his work. A tribute to him, and reminds us of how much. Uh, uh, he will be missed within our theater community right. in Chicago. The first play that I saw was uh, The Fall to Earth at Steppenwolf many years ago, starring Rondi yep. Reed. Rondi yep. Reed, who's worth a long time Steppenwolf ensemble member, was a dear friend from high school days in Dixon, Illinois, with Joel Drake Johnson. And I interviewed her several years ago, actually, and she mentioned that he was her theater buddy. They would take road trips from Dixon to see whatever touring show or whatever they could see in Chicago on a weekend. So, um, 
he had a long association, you know, with, with many other um, significant artists in Chicago. Okay, Shattered Globe Theater's production of Rashida Speaking continues at Theater Wit through June 4th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. You're, You're most welcome. welcome. Thank you both. What are you looking at? I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. The Manhattan-based Metropolitan Museum of Art, one of the world's premier art institutions, is closed four days every year. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, and the first Monday in May. That's the day the museum hosts one of the world's most glamorous parties, the Met Gala. It started in 1948 as a midnight supper event and has grown over the past 70 plus years into one of the most photographed parties in the world. The gala has a purpose other than to provide red carpet entrances. It's a fundraiser for the Met's Costume Institute. Last year, the evening raised around $16.4 million. A-list movie stars, platinum recording artists, Wall Street giants, politicians, fashion icons, and millionaire entrepreneurs pay $35,000 a ticket to attend the party. This year is a quasi-return to normal for the gala. The 2020 party was canceled for obvious reasons, and last year the event was pushed until the fall. There's definitely some anticipation among the celebrity class for this year's Met Gala. The red carpet arrival is a giant spectacle with hundreds of cameras and fans, but the actual gala is quite secretive. No filming is allowed inside, and even social media posts from the party are banned. But back in 2016, the documentary The First Monday in May offered viewers a rare behind-the-scenes glimpse of the exclusive event while also diving into some deeper questions like whether fashion should be viewed as art. I caught up with the film's director, Andrew Rossi, right before the film opened in theaters. The first Monday in May is currently available to stream on HBO Max or to rent on a variety of video-on-demand platforms. I recently rewatched it, and it holds up pretty well. With that in mind, and in honor of the return of the Met Gala and the beginning of May, I thought it would be a good time to revisit the piece from a few years ago. The idea for this or the origins for the, the first Monday in May really came from Vogue. They reached out to you with this idea. I got a message from Silvana Wardrette, who's uh, the director of special events at Vogue, that Anna Wintour was interested <clears throat> in making a film about the Met Gala and the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I met with her and we talked about Andrew Bolton, who's the curator of the Costume Institute, who's, I think, best known as the person who put together the Alexander McQueen show in 2011. And we talked about whether it would be possible to make a movie that looks at both the curatorial process at the museum in analyzing fashion as an art form, but also this party that Anna Wintour hosts every year called the Met Gala. That's a critical part of the Institute's operation. It's a, it's a big sort of star-studded affair, um, and it raises money for the Costume Institute. And let's actually listen to a clip here from the documentary, The First Monday in May, this provides some background information on the, the Met Ball for people that, that aren't familiar with it. You can have an acting icon next to a musical icon next to a political icon. It's like a giant aquarium on that night. A lot of thought goes into who sits next to who, if they sat next to each other last year, if they've sat next to each other in other events. 
So much goes into it, it's, it's shocking. A lot of power, brokering. Alex has six seats. He's bringing Gaga, Miley, Zoe. She's Tori. Uh-huh. She's looking for one other guy. And then Ricardo is down here with Jessica, Julianne, and Beyonce. So that's that. What Anna has done is understood that high fashion, I mean, the most extraordinary expression of this medium, when it's paired with celebrity, becomes something bigger than both. And that is what happens on the red carpet. When you see Rihanna in a couture gown, it's transcendent. I immediately was really interested in, in, in the idea of, of going behind the scenes at these two great institutions, the Met, which is, you know, a sort of leader in, in culture in New York City and, and I think throughout the world, and even the institution of Anna Wintour herself, who, you know, is a, is a sort of pop culture icon who's developed a mythology around her. In, in other movies I've made, like Page One, Inside the New York Times, which looks at the, the struggles of, of traditional print journalism uh, in newspapers, or even in my last film, Ivory Tower, which is about higher education and student debt, I've always looked to try and understand these big institutions that our society views uh, as important um, leaders uh, in the culture, to try and understand them through individuals, through human beings that reflect the mission of the institution and its humanity for, for both good and bad. And so I thought that this would be a great way to look at the role of museums and, and you know, the, the, the function of fashion in our, in our world. And so one component deals with the, the exhibition, and we're going to get into that. And then the other deals with uh, putting together the Met Ball, and it's very glamorous, very Hollywood, uh, lots of fashion. How familiar were you with that scene, with that world coming into this? You know, I didn't, I didn't know that much about the Met Gala, and I, I would say that I'm not an expert on fashion by any means. I think, you know, I've, I've been interested in fashion documentaries, which are sort of a subset, a subgenre of, of docs. Um, I remember seeing the movie Unzipped when I was, I don't know, maybe 20, 21 years old. I really am drawn to movies that are character-driven, but also that can explore abstract ideas and intellectual debates. And so I thought that the sort of marriage of, you know, Anna Wintour, who's this pop culture icon that, of course, we know from The Devil Wears Prada and the September Issue, another doc made about her in Vogue, coupled with, you know, Andrew Bolton, the curator at the Met's process of staging a show, would hopefully provide a journey that is populated by lots of interesting intellectual conversations. So let's talk about Anna Wintour. As you say, she's pretty much a pop culture icon at this point because of The Devil Wears Prada, the documentary, the September issue, and other media coverage. I feel, unlike other public figures in similar positions, people have very specific feelings and opinions about Anna Wintour. What were your interactions with her like? Did your expectations match up with the, the reality you know, I think in the film, we, we tackle head on this notion of her as almost a dragon lady, which is an interesting dovetail with some of the stereotypes that Andrew Bolton is exploring in terms of Chinese culture filtered through Western film of the 1930s and 40s. Um, there's this idea that she's a sort of imperious figure 
And what I found is that she is a very exacting boss. She's very clear about what she wants, but she's never capricious. She's She has a, a, a fairly healthy dynamic with her colleagues and her employees. And so, you know, Boz Lerman, who's um, one of the creative consultants to the Met Gala, says in the movie that it could be that some of the focus on Anna's style of management and this notion of her as a sort of devil figure um, is gendered. That, you know, if you saw those sort of character traits of, of being a very clear-headed or, or decisive boss in a man, you would think, okay, well, that's that's decisive leadership. You wouldn't sort of attribute negativity to it. And and that's, I, I guess I would say that's, that's how I came away from dealing with her. I think that um, in our society, when a woman is in a room commanding the room, commanding a meeting with a very sort of pithy style, it's, it's, it's something that, that sometimes gets skewed. So I think what I hope the movie can do is give you a fresh perspective, give audiences an opportunity to observe Anna Wintour in the context of working with the Costume Institute, which is something she's very personally motivated by. And I think that that's hopefully a different context than seeing her as, as the editor of a magazine and, and all the things that that brings with it. And on the other side, the other main character is Andrew Bolton, who's the curator who's putting together this exhibition, which in 2015 was uh, China Through the Looking Glass. Is he almost, I don't want to oversimplify, but he juxtaposes well with Wintour. I think that's a really good point. Yes, Andrew Bolton is is very sort of understated. He's he's a great sort of diplomat as a curator, um, working around the other curatorial departments at the Metropolitan Museum, each of which are very, um, as he describes, territorial uh, in their hope to sort of govern what they do and 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 how they're exhibitions and their departments and their galleries appear in the museum. And so, you know, we observe Andrew Bolton in conversation with the curator of the Asian art department, because the show that Andrew is doing is about Chinese culture as filtered into Western fashion. And it's one of the largest exhibitions that the Met has ever done. It goes beyond the Costume Institute's gallery at, at the museum and throughout the Asian art department's galleries. So there's a lot of conversation about the sort of theoretical underpinning for how things are placed in the galleries in the Asian art department and and whether fashion, costumes hung on mannequins and video projections of the movies that inspire these costumes, whether they become a distraction to the authentic works of Chinese art that are in the background. So the way that Andrew Bolton goes about this is is very elegant and and respectful and diplomatic. You know, and I think that Anna Wintour's management style is also elegant in its way, but, you know, it's just, it's if nothing else, I think you observe two very adept practitioners of a negotiating style trying to achieve their ends. So so the movie is really, is really about that. It's a sort of passion play for, for each of them trying to accomplish their goals. The film takes on this question of is fashion... Art can fashion be considered true art, and it explores that. Uh, in your opinion, people within the matter, within New York's art scene, do they look down on fashion? 
Well, I think that there is the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum, I think has been around for over 50 years, but within the, the history of that institution, it's still kind of young. And so the role that fashion plays in museums as a subject of exhibitions that can draw big crowds and that can deal with uh, complicated topics in a very visual and scholarly way, but, but accessible, that's, that's something that's seen as almost a disruptive force in museums and in the sort of academic world that, that museums occupy. And, you know, in the art world in general, I think there's much more of a kind of post-Warhol sense that fashion can be art. And so there's an interesting tension between the kind of art market and the art world as a commercial force and then the more scholarly world that museums occupy. But I think it's also fascinating that in this sort of digital era, fashion exhibitions are able to draw crowds you know, into uh, a brick-and-mortar place to, to commune with art. And that's something that I think Andrew Bolton has really cracked the code on in terms of getting people excited about being in a gallery with art. And, you know, fashion, I think, can be just as intellectually fulfilling an object to look at as, as a painting or a sculpture. I want to stay on this topic of whether fashion can be considered art. I want to play a clip from the, the film. We talked about Anna Wintour, and there are few people in the fashion world that have as much influence as she does. One of those people that might have more influence than her is Karl Lagerfeld, the creative director at Chanel, and he's featured in the film. Let's listen. It's a little boring when designers uh, say they are artists, especially when they say it themselves, thinking you are an artist, what should not be on a runway, but what should be in a gallery. So go to a gallery. What we do is applied art. Chanel never said that she was an artist. She, she was a dressmaker. Madame Vionnet was a dressmaker. Madame Lam was a dressmaker. They wanted to dress a certain kind of society, and they were happy and fluttered when those women bought those dresses. Were you surprised by his comments when you presented him that question regarding whether fashion can be considered art? I was surprised. You know, Karl Lagerfeld has a very emphatic position that fashion is just an applied art and not a fine art. You know, basically, it gets down to whether you view art as something that should be sort of made for itself. You know, the Latin phrase, ars, gratia ars, I guess, you know, made for its own sake versus something that's made for a commercial end. And I think many applied arts are viewed as something that can have great artistry in the craft of their making, but are not pure works of art. It's interesting because in the movie, we then talk to Jean-Paul Gaultier and also to Jean Galliano, and both of them have a more moderate stance. I think, you know, Galliano believes that some fashion can rise to the level of art that deserves to be in a museum. And Galliano sort of is in the middle. Um, so it's fascinating to to see these great practitioners of, of fashion design, you know, opining on on what they think their artwork ultimately means. So the the film, we're not going to give anything away, but it, it culminates, the, the exhibit opens on the night of the, the big Met Gala. Uh, so the film like kind of builds to the them putting together the, the event and then the exhibit, and then you're there the, the night of the 2015 Met Ball. What was that like? Is there a lot of pressure for you to capture everything? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a tremendous sense of relief that we've been watching this exhibition getting put together for so many months. And, you know, this is not just a big party, but it's also the, the opening night for a piece of theater, which is these galleries that are occupied by 
costumes and all the things that Andrew Bolton's put together. So, you know, you have this really iconic audience going through that show with Justin Bieber and Madonna and Kanye West and then the designers like Gautier and Michael Kors. So we had about eight cameramen um, in different places to to not only capture the fun and the kind of voyeuristic thrill of seeing all of these celebrities kind of hanging out together, which is which is a fun thing, but also to get the sense of how the show is emotionally really touching to people um, and educational too, because you know there are there are the sort of the big names of fashion like Galliano and, and Lagerfeld represented in the show, but there are also designers like Gopay, who's a Chinese designer that we talked to in the film, um, whose work is there. You referenced your most recent documentaries, and you've gone behind the scenes of the country's greatest newspaper, and arguably one of the country's most respected museums. They're completely different institutions with different objectives. But did you find parallels with the way they operate and, and the people that, that make them run? Absolutely. I think that, you know, what's, what's fascinating is that these institutions that we know from the outside seem so impenetrable, so perfect in many ways. I mean, even though, you know, in page one, we look at the failures in reporting with Judy Miller and Jason Blair and, and, and certainly the Times, you know, has different, people have different opinions about it. Um, and the Met, some people might also question, you know, some of the choices that it makes. But I think that in Andrew Bolton, as different as, as he is, excuse me, as a, as a sort of elegant British man who is sort of globetrotting around the world to put together this, this, this show versus David Carr, who's at the, at the center of page one, who is a recovered drug addict and sadly now um, has passed away. You see this common sense of, of mission, of passion, of, of transcending the ordinary day's routine and process to really strive to something that is beyond oneself to give to others some kind of enlightenment, some kind of joy in what they're writing or what they're putting into a gallery. And, you know, again, I think it, it helps one to sort of go beyond the, the brick and mortar, the concrete of the, of the beautiful edifice of these, you know, of the museum or, or the brand of the New York Times and kind of understand more deeply why people care. And hopefully audiences go away with, you know, a sense of enjoyment cinematically and, and visually because we're in this really visually rich environment of the museum, but also some sort of insight. That's Andrew Rossi. He's the director of the first Monday in May. The documentary is available to stream for free on HBO Max, or you can rent it on iTunes, Prime Video, or Google Play. The 2022 Met Gala takes place tomorrow night at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. You can stream the red carpet coverage at Vogue.com. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Founded by renowned dancer and choreographer... The Ruth Page Center for the Arts is continuing its namesake's mission five decades later. Today, the center is a creative hub for performing arts, especially dance. The historic 1927 structure hosts a variety of dance classes, rehearsals, and performances. It's also the current performance home of Porchlight Music Theater. 
The center was all set to celebrate its milestone 50th anniversary two years ago. Then, of course, the pandemic hit and everything was put on hold. In the midst of the shutdown, the center's longtime marketing and development director, Silvino De Silva, took over as interim executive director. A few weeks ago, the interim label was removed and he was introduced as the new leader of the Ruth Page Center for the Arts. I recently visited the Near North Side Arts Center for a conversation with De Silva. For people maybe unfamiliar, what's the, the best way to describe the mission of the Ruth Page Center for the Arts? Well, our official mission is to be a platform for developing great artists and being able to connect them with audiences and community. That's pretty broad, but for us it makes sense because we're a performing arts center with a variety of different programs. We have a school of dance, for example. With our mission, it's turning these budding young performers into artists and professional dancers. We also have uh, an in-residence program um, where we have a variety of other arts organizations here. Uh, some of them have office space here, some uh, rehearse and have office space, some rehearse, have office space, and then perform in our theater. Um, so that's our, our broad mission. I like to think beyond that mission that uh, we're, this building is a hub for the performing arts. It's something that when uh, Ruth Page first purchased this building in 1970 and changed it from what it used to be was a moose lodge <laughs> into the space that we have now, which has a 218-seat theater um, for dance studios uh, and offices for a variety of uh, performing arts organizations. So it's become this real performing arts center hub for creativity and exploration and collaboration. So it, it's my expansion of, um, of, our, of our mission. I was gonna ask, cause I read the building, I think it was built in 1927, and I know the, the arts center didn't start until 50 years ago. Was it a moose lodge originally? It was, it was a moose lodge. Uh, we have photos somewhere in our archives of what it looked like. Um, what is our theater used to be their basketball court. Oh, wow. And in the lower level where we have um, a little breakout room and one of our studios, that studio was a bowling alley. And on the fourth floor where we have another studio and some offices, that's where they had all the pool tables. Oh, wow. And where we are currently in the conference room um, was uh, the financial center. Um, where members would uh, pay their dues or cash a check uh, yeah. and all of that good stuff. But Ruth picked this building because of the space she could get for dance studios that was unobstructed by a pillar or a column. And this had the right uh, proportions mm -hmm. for that. And the ability to turn what was a basketball court into a black box scenario for theater and, uh, and dance, which is where some of Chicago's leading um, institutions began. We had uh, Looking Glass Theater here before they went to the Water Tower, Chicago Shakespeare before they went to Navy Pier. Um, Chicago Children's Theater was another organization that um, used that, uh, that space. So she was, she was really clever in, yeah. in what she was looking for and her vision for transforming this Moose Lodge into a performing arts center. 
If you're not familiar with the center's namesake, Ruth Page was a trailblazer and a true innovator in the world of dance. Ruth Page was born in Indiana, and um, she came to Chicago to um, take dance lessons. She became, at a very young age, probably 16, 17, a very fine uh, classical ballerina and went on to have an international career around the world, working with some of the, the uh, first um, international ballet companies. She, in the 30s, started to explore choreography. So in addition to being a performer, she started choreographing. She worked with uh, Isamo Noguchi on one of her classic uh, dances from 1932 called Expanding Universe using the similar sack dress that Martha Graham used in, in her piece. And then when she retired from performing, um, she still wanted to create. She moved back to Chicago and decided to uh, purchase a building where she could now have a school in addition to um, the other things she was doing. So she went from classically trained ballerina to a choreographer using modern contemporary techniques well before it was uh, accepted, certainly by somebody um, in the ballet world. She danced barefoot, she danced to spoken word, she had one of the first feminist ballets, doing things that nobody else really did. But she came back to Chicago, bought this building, and became a producer and a benefactor later in life. This is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Silvino De Silva, the new executive director of the Ruth Page Center for the Arts. The center had planned to celebrate its 50th anniversary in 2020. Those plans had to be put on hold once the pandemic started. We had many plans in 2019 as we were looking for our, towards our 50th anniversary um, celebration that, of course, as everybody, had to uh, adjust and pivot somewhat. But for us, there was some good that actually came out of it because we transferred some of our thoughts of events or performances that we were going to do into other actionable items to celebrate the legacy of Ruth Page and also to look to the future as well, beyond the current 50-year uh, milestone. Uh, so because we had to think outside the box, we came up with a couple of new uh, programs and initiatives that I'm very proud of that takes us into the future and looks forward while honoring our past. Many of those new programs are aimed at increasing accessibility and reaching new dancers. The programs that we began as part of the 50th anniversary celebration had to do with expanding inclusion of uh, various artists in the ballet world. It's providing access to youngsters who wouldn't traditionally um, be able to come to a ballet school or take ballet training. One particular one is called the Lauren Anderson Scholarship. Lauren Anderson was one of the first black prima ballerinas uh, in an international dance company with uh, Houston Ballet, and it was in the early 90s. She went on to have a wonderful career, and when she retired, her ballet shoes are part of the Smithsonian Institute in DC. She was kind enough to let us um, use her name for two scholarships, which would provide uh, a year of training in our Ruth Page Civic Ballet uh, training company. Um, but it's geared towards dancers of color, 
and Lauren Anderson will mentor these, uh, these two youngsters for the year. She'll come in from Houston. She'll work with them. Um, they'll have access to her as a mentor. It's one thing that, that I'm very excited about. The announcement was just made that uh, you're the, the new executive director. Uh, you were acting as interim for like a year and a half. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so at the, at the end of uh, 2020, uh, I came on as uh, acting executive director. I've been with the center for 20 some odd years um, as uh, director of marketing, communications, and uh, development. Um, and I was very honored to be selected by the Board of uh, Directors to not only take us through this interim period with our 50th anniversary and, uh, and having to pivot, um, but to be selected recently as the, the new executive director. They're a wonderful board, always in the trenches with you, uh, and I feel very supported and, uh, and grateful for their, their trust, because I, I expect to um, continue all of the wonderful, bright things that the center does. That's my goal. Taking over something in 2020 had to be a, a really challenging endeavor, and it, it's still such a strange time period for arts organizations, uh, for everyone, but especially the arts. Has the past two years changed or shaped your vision for the center looking ahead? It has somewhat. Uh, it truly it truly has. I'm not sure that had this come about without the pandemic, if we would have had this particular trajectory of, uh, of what we want to do. Um, so I think that was very impactful to have, you know, kind of a forced look at ourselves internally and uh, really assess our mission. Was it still valid? Um, were we still relevant? And if so, um, how do we take that relevance beyond what we are currently doing? Um, how do we continue to serve our community, um, not with just existing programs, but new programs that would touch on areas that need to be uh, addressed or fostered? Um, I, in a strange way, the pandemic really did uh, affect this look at, uh, at the future for us, which I think would have been slightly different without having this defining period in our lives. That's Silvino De Silva, the new executive director of the Ruth Page Center for the Arts. And the center will be presenting two performances at Ravinia later this month. You can check out a full schedule and learn more about the center at ruthpage.org. Come naturally on the floor for dancing soon becomes romance and that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. That you would not do at home
come naturally on the floor for dancing soon becomes romancing when you hold a girl in your arms that you've never held before even guys with two left feet come out all right if the girl is sweet if by chance their cheeks should meet wild dance